Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Wizard and the Bruiser. That's right, it's me, your nuclear wasteland, vault-dwelling bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your child-killing wizard, Jake. There you go. And I can kill children. (laughs) The freedom. Limitless possibilities. It was like, I said, Jake, what do you want to do for an episode next week? And he said, kill children. And I was like, well, Jake, that's not really a thing we can do for a podcast episode. And I was like, quit censoring me. (laughs) What is it with this oppressive thought police that says that I can't pretend to kill children? He called me an SJW. Mm-hmm. It was brutal. I slapped you right on the tip of your own tongue. <laughs> I slapped it. Ugh. And and uh, at the end of the day, uh, we decided, you know what? It's time for a fucking Fallout episode. I mean, what are we doing here? Uh, it's a big deal. It's um, this is one of the ones that I've been scared of for a very long time. Yes. Um, we did Skyrim though. Sky- that was just one game. That was just one game. Yeah. And the love that Fallout has is, I, I honestly believe it's kind of earned because it's this one-of-a-kind property in the greater nerd cultural realm. And also similar to the Skyrim episode, it's something that is uh, a solitary endeavor. You spend hours upon hours upon hours in what is, you know, not proverbially a wasteland in these games. And that is a lot of time to just kind of like think and experience. And uh, it's only when you can break out and only when it's done that you like enter back into the real world and you discover that millions of people also shared what should have been this deeply personal experience with you. Uh, Not only that, but, you know, the the story of post-apocalyptic tales it's like it's the core of every american as soon as like uh, as soon as we invented the nuclear bomb we've entertained ideas of like oh cool uh we can and eventually will probably blow it all up i wonder what that's gonna be like <laughs> also though I, I i have to mention this um this is actually an anniversary gift from James Ryan, James Ryan's girlfriend. Happy anniversary to you. Their anniversary is on October 16th. This is coming out just around the same time. And the things he wants to pump out there is his and her own Twitch channels. Uh, their Twitch TV channels uh, are twitch.tv forward slash heebie jeebies. 
that's again twitch.tv forward slash heebiejeebies and hers is twitch.tv forward slash nevarxmore um, <laughs> which is n-e-v-a-r-x-m-o-r-e so there you go um, there you go and that that's raven backwards x-m-o-r-e so um, happy anniversary guys here's your gift enjoy I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed researching it Jake may your love be as as unkillable as a horde of casadors in an area that you are un, you are not the right level for so um, I hate to make promises but we should have a pretty special guest next week to kind of talk about more of our personal experiences with the series I will say this for me personally mm-hmm. I remember my buddy got it. it was back in the dark days of gaming for me. I wasn't really playing a lot. It was kind of when Which I was starting to play a little bit more Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. I remember um, uh, I was living with my buddy Cap. Shout out to Cap. And he brought home Fallout 3 and it looked really cool. And I put it in and I did all the vault stuff and I walked out of the vault and I went left and I immediately got murdered by this dude who was like trashing a car. <laughs> and then I went right and I immediately got murdered by this mutant that was like hanging out by a bridge. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I can handle this and I put it down <laughs> and I, and I, and, and I didn't come back to it for years. I now have it on my PC and I have been tolling around with it. I haven't like gotten into it, into it. I will say though, when fallout four came out, I got that, uh, on my PlayStation four, I believe. Yes. And played through all of fallout four. I didn't get like super deep with the side quests and stuff though. I do feel that I missed out because I think that fallout three is the reason for the season at the end of the day. Um, there are other, there are people who say it's New Vegas, but either way, Those I think people are correct. <laughs> I think that Fallout 4 was a great time, but maybe not as great as uh, a couple of games that came before it. And I'm interested to see what Fallout 60, 76 is all about, even though it really on paper sounds like absolutely not the kind of game I like to play. Either way, though, that's my really my personal experience. I guess Fallout 4, I got really into the loop of it. I fucking... I don't have a lot of memories of Fallout 4. Like, I think people have memories of mm-hmm. Fallout 3 is my problem. I, I I vaguely remember, you know, the brotherhood and the choices you have to make and the relationship you you have, like, with your, uh, what, with your father, right? And the fourth one? Wait, was it your father? Your son is the fourth your one. Your son is the fourth one, right? Not your father, right. And Your um, father, Liam Neeson, in the third one. Yes, and... Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely played the shit out of it is what I remember. You know what I mean? I remember that awesome looking perks, uh, chart mm-hmm. was super cool. Um, certain things like that. But again, I think that that's where fallout four is inferior to fallout three. There just seems to be like so many memorable moments from three. And of course it was this whole new ball game for people, uh, that, you know, you, they were a little more used to when four came out. My personal experience, uh, started way back in 1997, when in my uh, in the nice mall, not the shitty mall, in the nice mall, a cyber cafe opened, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the entire world. We're talking MS. We're talking CNET cool. We're talking late '90s Web 1.0 cool, and uh, they had all these like uh, gaming ready stations that had all the latest games installed. And I like loaded up this like little prepaid card with ten dollars. I sat down. All these games, most of which I never heard of. I was so jazzed just to be in like behind the wheel of like this system that you know I, my family couldn't like buy. And uh, I was like, ooh, something about just the fucking rad as hell power armor face on Fallout just drew my eye, and I immediately clicked it. And there was a cool, violent opening cinematic, and there was like 
people getting shot in the head. And then there was like this weird 50s aesthetic and everything. The world was so ugly and yet appealing and everything. It, it blew my mind. I really didn't even like have an understanding of stuff like Adam Punk uh, aesthetics or even post-apocalyptic stuff. I, you know, I hadn't watched Mad Max. I hadn't seen Road Warrior. So like this, it's filled my mind with all these like crazy ideas. And then it came time to actually build the character. And there were so many <laughs> menus and numbers and I was overwhelmed that I didn't know what to do. Wait, this is the first Fallout? This is a, I'm playing this in 1997 that in a cyber cafe. fucking bananas. Uh, a gaming cafe, whatever. And uh, it closed down within the year. Um, <laughs> and I was just like so just put off and overwhelmed and confused because I hadn't played any CRPGs up until that point. And uh, I was, you know, I, I didn't even know what Dungeons and Dragons was besides like a weird punchline in episodes of Freakazoid. Right, like, right. I was so new to like the greater world of actual like deep nerd culture. And like, meanwhile, the little ticker on how much time I had left paid for was just like going down and down and down. <laughs> so I was just clicking like mad trying to skip all the dialogue. And I just left away with this weird icky taste in my <laughs> mouth as something that I thought was going to be like robot man fucks a zombie <laughs> turned into like, now if you put points into charisma, you will have to suffer and uh, is intelligence. Now charisma you think is more like a, a dialogue skill, but that's you're thinking of speech. And so what you have to understand is charisma is more of like your physical, like I was just done. <laughs> uh, I missed Fallout 3, but I did play New Vegas, and it was one of the best experiences. It was mind-blowing to Interesting. me. Interesting, And it was, like, again, for, for a younger man, uh, that level of, quote-unquote, depth in the story. The fact that uh, you could, uh, you know, it wasn't perfect, but... I think we all have this dream of the magic game that you can just escape into. And these Fallout games were ones where, like, you're like, fuck this. I'm just going to walk randomly in one direction. And you would, quote unquote, stumble upon some cool shit. And that right. felt amazing. So what I'm trying to say is, <laughs> is for some for one reason or another, uh, the, the Fallout games, uh, instead of swords and sorcery, instead of, like, aliens and... Uh, high-minded Jedi bullshit. This was a grounded, dirty, violent, quote-unquote mature open world that you were free to explore. Right. And that was intoxicating. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. With the vibe all to it, all to itself. I think really helped propel that game in such a such a great way. It was a it was a world that feels unique, that feels lived in and interesting, um, that you want to just get out there and check out. Well, let's let's get bring it all the way back to the beginnings. Um, and I know we talked about Bethesda in our Skyrim episode. We'll give a little bit of a you know we Bethesda is like way late to the story. Exactly. We're not we're not going to be talking about Bethesda for a while. It all actually really starts with Interplay Entertainment, founded in October 1983 as Interplay Productions in Southern California. The CEO uh, named uh, Brian Fargo started it up with programmers Jay Patel, Troy Worrell, and Rebecca Heinemann. All previously had worked for a small video game dev named Boone Corporation. Um, and Brian Fargo essentially just kind of pulled them from there. He is uh, a well-to-do lad from, that came from a big old bunch of money. Um, he, he was an er he was an early independent programmer. He had to have a like some kind of... We, we run into this all the time. You need some kind... If you manage to get good at computers in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, you had a fix. You had an in. You yeah. had some kind of sugar Well, daddy. for him, he came from a little-known bank called Wells Fargo, 
Oh my god, I didn't put that together. Last name Brian Fargo. Oh, yeah, I, that's that whole time I never put it together. That's his family. Uh, they also created American Express. So, uh, yeah, this dude was uh, doing pretty good. Uh, How did his company go bankrupt? I don't understand. <laughs> his parents bought him an Apple II in 1977. Daddy, I want more money. Exactly. Daddy, Brian, I want four Apple IIs. Br- Brian, you're 47 years old. <laughs> Daddy, I want money for my video game company. <laughs> Uh, he wrote his first I video game. I spent too much money releasing games by shiny entertainment, daddy. Can you say in that voice, can you say, I made a game called Labyrinth of Martagon, daddy? Oh, daddy. <laughs> Thank you for the money, daddy. I made a game called Labyrinth of Martagon. Well, I, I hear that's your first game, son. <laughs> but I hear you're going to make other games like a text adventure game, son, that's called The Demon's Forge. I love text adventures, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> He self-published The Demon's Forge uh, and later put it out through Boone Corporation before founding Interplay Productions. He initially got a contract with Activision for a graphical text adventure game called Mind Shadow on the Apple II and Commodore 64. Don't you love these old school computer games? The Demon's Forge, Mind Shadow, Fargo. Was it Demon's Forge or Mind Shadow that he did his little scam on? Uh, what's his little scam? I can't remember which of his early titles, but uh, he made Ooh. these text uh, game, these text games for eight bit computers that have like had these very weird, janky like graphical, uh, uh, you know, visual aids, but they were like weird, dithered, like low, like the most low res, barest representation of what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, what he did was he spent all of his money on a single ad in a single uh, popular computer magazine. And then called multiple stores across the country and was like, hey, I just saw this ad for this cool game. Like, do you stock it? And the guy on the other line would be like, uh, no, but we can we can order it, I guess. And so he managed to, like, bullshit his way to, like, a couple hundred thousand sales. Holy shit. Just through sheer swindling. That's a f- that's fucking amazing, man. Uh, but, yeah, he he uh, he was working on Mind Shadow. He, he, for this game, he created a text parser that could understand 250 nouns and 200 verbs. You know, he was in there. He was deep. You know what I mean? Now I can just like yell at my phone and a pizza will show up at my door. (laughs) Well, it was hard back in the day. It was very hard back in the day. Uh, He also did some military work for Laurel Corporation. He did stuff with like defense electronics and like system integration. Yeah, dude, like some secret military ops like defense programs. The only audience. Like war games. Like the tic-tac-toe. He did that. He made one of those. The only audience that's more willing to drop money on like technology that's like sounds like it'll be cool one day than like Gamers is the military. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then Fargo hired an old high school friend to work on an RPG, a little known RPG called Bard's Tale. Um, with his old buddy Michael Cranford, who he created Labyrinth of Mardagon with back in the day. Wait, this was Forgotten Stories, The Bard's Tale, right? I get. Oh, yeah. Is that what it is? It was supposed to be like an anthology series, like uh, Twilight Zone. It was supposed to be all these text adventures from different genres and points of view. I see. Yeah. Okay. And then him and his crew created Wasteland, which was a critically acclaimed open world sci fi RPG, which with a futuristic post apocalyptic America, if Tommy, if you you've heard this one destroyed by a nuclear holocaust generations before um he made it for the apple II and then ported it to the commodore 64 and ms dos that was a big deal obviously the the clear precursor to fallout and also their first kind of hit you know what i mean mm-hmm. well like, bard's tale was a big bard's hit. tale was a big hit and then and then their their second big hit 
<laughs> but all of their big hits got a huge chunk out of them because companies like Activision and EA or yeah, EA uh, would, uh, you know, take their cut as a publisher. Right, right. So that's when they were like, huh, you're telling me there's companies that just get money for other people's work? We got to try that. <laughs> um, so uh, Fargo turned Interplay from just a dev to a dev publisher, just like you just said, for their next set of games. And they put out games like Battle Chess the, through Quicksilver Software. They put out ca- a game called Castles. And um, there was a game actually based on the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson of the same name with like a cyberpunk aesthetic, always kind of working, dabbling in this sort of sci-fi um, playland. They also sure. published uh, the first Western-developed uh, Super Nintendo game, a uh, little thing called RPM Racing by a little-known company called Silicon and Synapses. Yep. Who would later become fucking Blizzard. Blizzard, bitches! <laughs> That's your weekly Blizzard alert. Every time it gets mentioned, I'm going to do that from now on. Blizzard coming in, sneaking into the game right here. I love it. You got to love how they all intersect and interconnect. And that's what this show is all about. So I hope you learned some shit. Turn it off right now if you've learned five things. If you haven't learned five things yet, keep on listening. Yeah, he's doing that. They made a bunch of Star Trek video games for the PC and Nintendo along with other Ugh, games. I had that Star Trek game. It was, indis- again, another indecipherable PC <laughs> game that apparently is great, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and in 1994, Interplay acquires the GURPS role-playing system. I think we've mentioned GURPS before on this on this. Uh, I don't know. If we, all I all I remember podcast. about GURPS is just uh, I tried to play start a game up, um, or I tried to play in a game that people were starting up, and it was just so like just so many D sixes just flying everywhere because there were no like D twenties. Everything had to be settled uh, with D six. I rolls. hate when a bunch of D sixes just start flying in my face in like a dark nightclub. <laughs> what like a penis? <laughs> oh, it's a that. penis. Um, <laughs> And uh, a friend of mine used to have a joke that the way they balanced, because a big thing in GURPS was that you could um, balance out, like, you could give your character weaknesses, but then, like, right. that could give them extra talents because of it. Which is, very, I think, translates definitely into the Fallout It does. Structure. Although the, like, the, the, the oral histories says different, whatever, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, but the joke being that, like, my GURPS character is a limbless, blind, deaf woman. <laughs> Uh, but she can uh, she can like kill people with a thought and can time travel at will. Right, exactly. Right. So it's like, yeah, you you, you balance it all out, but you don't just base it off of. I guess the original D and D style was just dice rolls give you your stats. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically, this you could uh, kind of more specifically put points into things you wanted and take away from things you didn't. And most importantly, it was built to be able to handle any sort of setting. Ah. Whereas D and D was built around obviously the Tolkien esque fantasy. Of course. Uh, GURPS was the universal role-playing system. Gotcha. So you can put it into, let's say, a post-apocalyptic wasteland mm-hmm. set in Washington, D.C. I mean, the that's the thing, though. Once you got like you got the license for GURPS means there is no setting. Yet. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what they're working on right now. But they have a basic setting because they're making it, for sure, a spiritual successor to Wasteland. Not necessarily. I mean, from what I have here, oh, so they weren't there yet from what, what I had? I I had heard that they were kind of like, they got GURPS. They had Wasteland in the back of their head, and they started getting to work. So the way I hear it, there's a uh, GDC talk by a series, quote-unquote, creator, uh, Tim Kaine. And Interplay was rolling in the money and publishing big games. And this this guy, Tim Kaine, was kind of stuck between projects. And so he just started tooling around with a uh, game engine. 
That's he just had free time to start creating a game engine, uh, something that could like easily shift between platforms, something that could like incorporate new rule sets and something that could like uh, build like easy maps and work with sprites. And uh, he was just kind of free to work on it. Like no one cared that he was just off on his own. Mm. And uh, eventually the GURPS license deal kind of landed on his desk. And now this is an engine for a GURPS based game. Uh, But the fact that he was all on his own meant that a lot of early work on the game was just him. It was just him on his own. And he would, because he could not, it was for completely forbidden. They would have fired him on the spot if he had like poached people from active development teams because this is 90s PC development and there's teams working on like five different games to come out each year. Uh, he would just book a conference room at 6 p.m. and order a bunch of pizzas hmm. and he would just put out word like, hello, come to my uh, conference room. For pizza. Would he make it all creepy sounding like that? He would just be very deliberate in his choice of words that this is not about brainstorming or com- or contributing or volunteering work for my project. Well, you merely come to the conference room and enjoy some pizza. What if I want Chinese food? Pizza. We are giving out <laughs> pizza. What can you give out? Can you please tell uh, Jeff from the uh, visual assets team if he could just come over and enjoy some pizza? But my belly's going baba black sheep for a burrito. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm that guy. You're that they guy. They hired that. They or they fired that guy, I think. Probably. That guy Maybe. did not have a long ring. <laughs> do you know do you know where I could get where I could get some wheat? I'm sorry, I work here. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have asked that to you. Uh another one of the first people to actually get on board the team was uh besides Tim Kane was another guy named Leonard Boyarski, who did a lot of the game design and visual design. Uh he did the initial sketches of the Vault Boy, for instance. But right now I love that he has the word boy in his last name then. If techni- he created the Vault Boy. Technically it's in the instruction manual, he's referred to as Vault Man, and ah. the Vault Boy name didn't quite catch on for a while. It wasn't really until the Bethesda era that he was formally called that. But there I was, love that... Uh, it was also called Pip Boy, but the Pip Boy, if you look at Fallout 1, is a completely different character. Okay. Maybe that's the Robco logo. Meanwhile, uh, Fallout, uh, Fallout Boy is a band. Uh, <laughs> Vault Boy is the uh, is the Vault Based on Simpsons character, <laughs> oh, yeah. by the way. But but uh, I will say I do appreciate how much of that what you're discussing mm. did bleed in through the entire series. You know, I I was surprised to find how much basic aesthetic with the with that vault tech stuff mm. with the kind of 1950s style menuing and stuff like that. Um, like more specifically, 50s marketing menuing. Um, that that bled through the whole way. I think that's so cool because I was surprised to find that. I I I I, I felt or I was looking more towards learning about Fallout and it being vastly different from what you know Fallout Three ended up being, which is not the case. They ran through a lot. Uh, Tim Kaine in in the same GDC talk talks about how. Uh, one of the early, legit earliest ideas for the story was going to involve time travel, uh, killing the primordial ape that evolved from humanity, rescuing your girlfriend from aliens, and just this horrifyingly complex thing. Uh, they then had the idea to make it a, a Wasteland sequel, but then it turns out that EA, because just on the off chance, Interplay worked with EA to do a Wasteland 
uh, 10th anniversary release a couple of years before this. So they lost the rights to call their new game Wasteland 2. Ah. They then incorporated the uh, GURPS license into this amorphous project. I love that one of their working titles was Vault 13, a GURPS post-nuclear adventure. Oh, that was like the name for a very long time. <laughs> uh, it was actually... Uh, it was actually Fargo who like was like, give me a day, and came back with Fallout, and that was actually a huge breakthrough. Ah, yeah. interesting. The whole time, Fargo was like very hands-on, but also a businessman, because like this thing was completely superfluous. That's what you have to understand. Oh, this was one of those where business as usual, this is like in your spare time kind of thing, yeah. right? Apparently, And you, you mentioned Tim Kaine. Did you mention that he built the game engine in six months without like any money or resources or anything? Yeah. And that is so uh, intense. Yeah, it's definitely kind of like Resident Evil we talked about. I think Mega Man was similar in this sense where it was sort of like a, the, the side project, yeah. never the main project. The, the, the weird thing that isn't going to waste too much money that, yeah, okay, take a risk on. Right. Heavily inspired by XCOM. Um, did you mention that? I oh, no, no, no. There's uh, That's the other thing is the reason why the setting is so kind of outlandish and weird is because it is a total mishmash of all these pizza meetings and all these individual people right. that all wanted to like bring in elements of the stuff that they love. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, the, st- uh, the isometric display and the kind of tactical turn-based uh, combat is very much uh, stolen from XCOM. Although, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said isometric. <sighs> Fallout, Fallout 1 and 2 is an isometric. Isometric can uh, suggest a 45-degree viewing angle. apologize. Fallout 1 and 2 is technically a cavalier oblique uh, projection of the, of the world. Jake, smack yourself in the face. I'm sorry. It's cavalier oblique. It's cavalier oblique. Daddy, I made a good game. It's Cavalier Oblique. Give me money. <laughs> All right, I guess you will. My name is Wells. <laughs> How dumb of a name is that, huh? Oh, Wells, dear. And he just yeah. throws money at your face? Yeah, he th- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Also, the GURPS license uh, not happening. There were two major Travis tragedies that almost derailed the entire game and made Fargo want to uh, pull the plug on it. Uh, number one was that uh, in the kind of meandering three years that it took this project to finally come out, uh, because it was such a small team and such kind of a footnote to what the company was doing, the uh, they acquired the license to like Planescape and I think Forgotten Realms, if, or maybe that's the same thing. They acquired a bunch of uh, D and D licenses from Wizards right. of the Coast, and that that and th- that work almost got them to not make Fallout. Right? It, it was just like, why would we waste time on these right. original on this original weird side thing when we have you're making a CRPG? We just acquired expensive rights for CRPGs. Uh, go, you know, we'll, we can finish this whenever. And uh, Tim Kaine had to beg uh, Fargo to just please just let us keep working on this. And then a huge thing happened when Steve Jackson himself, the fucking munchkin guy, <laughs> finally got a hold of the of the game and it's kind of closing finished state and hated it. Uh, particularly, he hated the presence of Vault Boy. Oh, OK. Just did not enjoy his cartoonish antics. And uh, number two, he was very upset at the war like imagery, the violent imagery. Specifically, there's a shot in the opening cinematic where a soldier in power armor executes a civilian in a fashion very similar to that famous Vietnam photo. Mm. And so uh, Steve Jackson was like, oh, I'm just going to pull this. Uh, You know, I'm not in it anymore. I don't want this. It may have something to do with the fact that his own company was going to produce its own post-apocalyptic expansion setting book and didn't want to confuse his own brand with two different 
uh, you know, similar products that like if the game became more popular would overtake its own. I don't know. Maybe just saying that's what happened. Um, and again, Tim Kaine had to beg, beg for them to stay on the project. Going so far as just through sheer force of luck and his own programming skills to show that the rule set of how uh, things like uh, aiming and targeting and status uh, effects were handled by a separate module that he could freely edit in programming without uh, altering the game, without like destroying too much work on the game. Mm -hmm. So if he hadn't gone ahead and if he hadn't built this engine the way that he did, we wouldn't have had Fallout. You know what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying? That like yeah. what handles the actual like math crunching as you're playing the game is a separate module from the program. That's wild. Yeah. And is that that's not is that the specials? Or that, oh. But in place of GURPS. Oh, but then also GURPS um, uh, was replaced with the special system. The it was replaced with the special system, which is seven traits: uh, strength, perception, endurance, charisma, intelligence, agility, and luck. And that is held through all of. Of the Fallout series. Because D&D is six and they wanted theirs to be one more. Tim Kaine insists on this anecdote in a bunch of interviews and I don't believe him, but he seems super enamored with this fucking anecdote uh, <laughs> that for two days he announced that the system would be called Ace Lips. Oh, um, that's so stupid. And then it took a, it took, I believe, Scott Campbell to convince him that special was a easier to remember. Thing. <laughs> and he would have, and he said that uh, he was insistent that the seventh uh, trait is luck. That he wanted luck and chaos and randomness to play a small part in the game. That's fun. Um, um, so th And they purposely balanced it so that if you didn't level up using the optional side quest, you'd be too weak to finish. They definitely wanted you to get lost in all the different side stuff and everything. Um, I'll, I love I love the part about the... Uh, that they use the uh, uh, a sculptor to build the heads <laughs> that talk to you. Because all the faces in the old Fallout games look crazy. They all look wild. They all look like, um, I feel like music videos at the time you was doing oh, a lot of Oh, the talking heads. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the talking heads was a huge part of the game. Uh, Wasteland kind of featured it too. Uh, but, you know, it, it kind of gave uh, life to this world because everything's very abstracted in these tiny, even though at the, at the time... The game was like a 680 by 480 game, and that was like high res at the time. That was like a big breakthrough. They uh -huh. were doing an RPG with like a high 680, 480 uh, resolution. Those faces were, uh, the idea was Leonard Boyarsky, but Scott Rodenheiser is who made them. And the process was is that Scott would actually carve the initial face out of clay. Mm -hmm. And then put it into a 3D point scanner that they actually had on the premises for use with other a games. Pharaoh Space Arm, <laughs> and uh, they a program they, that was the name of the actual little arm that sort of scans it all in, and then a program called Vertisketch. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how they 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 got it they got it into the machine, and then um, uh, yeah, they used uh, Adobe Photoshop actually for the texture maps, which I thought was interesting. You, you forget that like these other programs create this sort of basic shit that you see in these games. You know what I mean? Like, like, oh, they just use Photoshop to Well, do Photoshop it. was like this crazy advanced thing and not just like something you can get on your phone. Uh, I guess that's true. Each individual head with all the expressions took about six weeks each, which is uh, why, especially in the first game, there's only about 12 of those like talking heads mm. in the game. Although they did get like celebrity voices. To yes, do. Ron Perlman stating the famous phrase, war. 
War never changes. Who else was I, uh, I Richard Dean Anderson, David Warner, and Tony Shaloub, just to name a few. They got Shaloub. They got Shaloub. They got Shaloub. They got Shaloub. Hey everybody, Holden here, and you guys, I'm so pumped to have gotten this sponsor. It was never truly a nerd podcast until we nailed this puppy down. I'm talking about Loot Crate, and more specifically, their new loot gaming service. Lex and I have a corner of our apartment now that holds all of our Harry Potter wands, action figures, we have a cinnamon toast man, and a Barrett plushie from FF7, and we are always looking for new loot to fill it with. That's where Loot Crate comes in. It's a monthly subscription box delivered direct to your door with exclusive pop culture collectibles, apparel, and gear. Loot Crate curates and designs everything themselves. You can't find these items anywhere else. No matter what you geek out about, this is for you. Now, Loot Gaming is a new curated collection of exclusive one-of-a-kind items from the best video game franchises. The October Crate has four incredible franchises, including Soul Calibur 2, Silent Hill, Psychonauts, and Cuphead. All of those I love. Loot Crate packs $60-plus of value into each crate for less than $29 a month with a guaranteed t-shirt in every crate. You can't lose. Seriously, Jake and I were so pumped when we found out we got Loot Crate as a sponsor. I can't wait for my shirt. Is it going to be a Cuphead shirt? Oh, we're the shit out of that. This crate will sell out. You must order by this week to guarantee yours. Get the best surprises each month from the largest geek and gaming subscription company. Geek out in style with Loot Crate. Subscribe now by going to lootcrate.com slash W-A-T-B and enter my code W-A-T-B to save an exclusive 30% off your subscription. That's lootcrate.com slash W-A-T-B and enter my code W-A-T-B to save an exclusive 30% off your subscription today. Of course, it was heavily influenced by 1950s pulp magazines and sci-fi films such as Forbidden Planet, along with superheroes of the atomic age. I mean, the Securitrons is Robbie the Robot. Yeah, it right? is absolutely Robbie the Robot. And, uh, you know, it, it's essentially all, all the stuff that came out after the dropping of that first nuclear bomb uh, on July 16th, 1945. So just kind of taking that and then putting it into the way future. Um, and game menus are designed to look like advertisements of the era, like I mentioned. a lot, And they also were very self-referential even in the first one or not only self-referential but referencing other different pieces of media mad max um the uh, doctor who blade runner there were just all these all these references to popular sci-fi media and things like that a big love letter to all of that stuff and yeah i mean it was it's a it was a very uh cool uh you know um uh original game in a lot of ways that came out using a lot of influences a lot of things that already existed but it was definitely just had a cool sense of style i think that let it stand out and really spoke to a lot of not just uh gamers but but uh, gamers that would go on to be programmers and i think that that's why bethesda would later jump on it uh, as something they they desperately wanted to make their own iteration of um yeah, uh, do you have anything else to talk about oh, Fallout so 1 before we uh, move on so to... So much more? I have so <laughs> much more? All right, cool. Let's keep going then. I think this is fascinating. I think the first Fallout is absolutely fascinating. As as you can already tell, this is part one of our coverage of Fallout, so we're taking our time here with the early games. Uh, so beyond the aesthetic uniqueness of the game, there were so many more like philosophical things that this game did differently. Mm. Uh, Tim Kaine was dead set on kind of breaking the mold that fantasy RPGs had laid out, specifically the Ultima series, where like you're this chosen one creature of light and you just have to unequivocally defeat evil. He wanted moral gray areas. He wanted player choice. Yeah. He wanted multiple solutions 
two uh two problems presented in the game is this new for i mean you know i for me the gold standard of that now is witcher 3 but was this something that really was new uh novel at the time well this was common in um in in pen and paper rpgs text adventure maybe even but but like stuff like uh you know this was already 1997 so you know you can't in final fantasy 7 uh speech check your way out of defeating Sephiroth. Right. But in... It's Sephiroth, not Sephiroth. Sephiroth! (laughs) (laughs) Don't just sing the song at me and let that be the answer. That's how you win an argument. You don't just sing sing a song to win an argument. You know what, Holden? You're making a lot of good points, and I will yield a couple of your arguments. However, have you considered... (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God, my earlobes. Um... Uh, you know, there's uh, you can still like ideally any uh, this is part of the design document. I'm so fucking mad. I couldn't get to the printer in time to get this out. Every every single problem presented in the in the game should have a violent solution, a stealth solution and a charisma speech, you know, intellectual solution Cool. Uh, to the point where this is like kind of a legendary thing in Fallout games is yep. uh, you can ideally always talk down the big bad guy. Like what should have been, what should always be this, like in any other game series, this like balls to the wall, you know, unload all of your cool weapons, use all your cool armor. You can, with enough points put into charisma and speech and intelligence, actually like sit down and talk to the main villain and explain why their plan is bad. (laughs) Uh, The master, which is one of the best villains in Fallout history, uh, video game history even. Uh, you know, you can famously te- like just go point by point as to why the uh, forced evolutionary virus uh, is a dead end to the future of humanity. And the uh, master will just be like, oh, fuck. Guess I was just crazy. Guess I was just cra- <laughs> shit. Well, sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. I, You know, whether or not the game fulfilled that promise, uh, you know, it's, it's always uh, up to debate. Uh, another thing is content. They wanted true freedom, and if you have true freedom in a post-apocalyptic setting, shit's going to get dark fast. They had their head, like, from day one, they're like, we're going to get an M rating. This is not up for debate. I think they got submitted for a T rating, and, like, it's, you know, they're like, why do you even bother? Just give us the M. Right. And famously, you could kill children. There are massive um, penalties for it. I believe in like I believe there was even a perk or a trait you could set up as child killer with its own accompanying Vault Boy illustration uh, <laughs> that they took out of the game because like just being able to do it and actually like pointing out that you can do it are two different things. Uh, but the game was banned in Europe because you know you you could it was possible and uh, in the later Bethesda games they took it out. That's like a real sticking point. And for I feel Fallout like fans. in the late nineties too. Like that was the best to have a a, a a evil a dangerous game. You know, I don't think that really exists anymore. But that concept was, concept was alive and well back when I was in high school. Like this game is dangerous. You can do stuff in it that like you should never be allowed to do. You know, like kind of before the GTA uh, you know phenomenon and everything like that. It was it was a big deal. Another thing that this game did uh, is perks. Uh, it sounds very simple, but like during QA, they were running into an issue where players were like, I don't like that when I level up, there's just kind of like, I just numbers go up and I don't feel like any right. different. 
Uh, so what they did was they, over the course of a weekend, they added these like weird little quirky things that uh, altered the way the game was played or gave you like specific bonuses in very specific situations. I, I will say the perk thing, even in Fallout 4, mm-hmm. was a big draw for me. Uh, that that still works today. Even like, aesthetic just, stuff like bloody mess that just yep. makes the game more squishy and violent. Bloody as you mess play. is so good. I mean, you you cannot not bring that up when it comes to talking about Fallout. It is so smart, and I lo- I love getting it. I get it as soon as I can. Yeah. you know what I mean. That's um, great. And uh, the popularity of the perk system in Fallout gave way. To, it was so influential that uh, it was added to the Elder Scrolls series. And uh, even a lot of people suggest that the addition of feats to Dungeons and Dragons was a direct result of perks in Fallout. Ah, interesting. Whew. Is that everything you have on Fallout? No, I will never have enough on Fallout. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it was this at, at the peak. At the peak, there was maybe like. 50 people working on this game just to get it out the door. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but at any given time, there was an incredibly small team just tapping away in their own quiet little corner at Interplay as the uh, giant publisher was uh, kind of flailing about doing all sorts of weird stuff, uh, succeeding on PC and just eating dick uh, in the console market. Uh huh. And well, and also though, it got swallowed up. I'm sorry, D6s. It got swallowed up. Yeah, exactly. It got swallowed up. Uh, the game was released on October 10th, 1997. And uh, it was also released alongside Baldur's Gate, which they, I think, also put out, right? Or uh, who put out Baldur's Gate? Uh, well, it could have been Bioware or um, or Black Oak. Either way, it was another RPG that just destroyed the market. Like, that was the big popular RPG of the time. Fallout got a little lost to that. It was a mild success, but not like a huge, huge success. Okay, so now we get to Fallout 2, right? Now we get to Fallout 2. But actually, we're going to transport you to a little year before 1996. A guy named Fergus Urquhart. I'm sorry, did you say a person or a, a, a crab demon? A may or may not be a vampire person <laughs> named Fergus Urquhart creates a studio named Black Isle Studios as a division of Interplay Entertainment. And a major portion of this studio were the team that made Fallout, and their first game was the sequel. They also worked with Bioware on Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, so there there you go. go. That's where we got it. Um, And they had nine months to complete the game. Urquhart said of this, we'd started working on Fallout 2 before we'd even ship Fallout 1. That was in the middle of 1997. By the beginning of 1998, when uh, Interplay was having some financial difficulties, they decided they wanted to make Fallout 2 and make it in the same amount of time as the original. As as far as they were concerned, we'd already been developing it for half a year already. So that gave us basically nine months to make the whole game. They wanted to make a memorable antagonist this time. And they wanted companions that level up with you. In the first game, there were companions, but they didn't, like, gain experience or anything like that. Uh, The the companions were actually... um added very late into the game and uh it was it's actually incredible one of the more frustrating things about the first game because they added it using scripting instead of hard coding it into the game as such um you know say your your companion character uh just fired a machine gun into a random crowd of people in the middle of a combat round and uh say hit two kids and killed them (laughs) it was very hard to manage so improving the companion system was a good idea 
But they also ran into a lot of uh, funny, ridiculous issues trying to build this game. This build, the game was a lot more expansive than the first one. I love this quote from programmer Dan Spitzley. He says, Another idea was giving players this car where they could store items in the trunk. The way we implemented that was to basically categorize the trunk as a companion. The game would think of the trunk as a companion, but that meant sometimes the trunk would disconnect from the car and kind of walk around behind the player. <laughs> You'd be on the third floor of a vault or something, and the trunk would suddenly turn up next to you. It turned out to be a huge issue. Um, and this, the other changes they made, the, the, there was a lot of vast, empty space created in the game that they had to fill last second. They expanded on just, they wanted you to really get that sense of exploration. You had to get that geck. Um, and Spitzley says that's where a lot of the crazier stuff, like the treasure hunting dwarf, or the red scorpion that played chess ended up coming from, which I think was something largely adopted by Bethesda. I think just that basic note of like, okay, we're just going to make, we're just going to give ourselves a gigantic open space to work with. And therefore we're going to force ourselves to just toss in little interactables everywhere throughout it. I would suggest that uh, the the amount of kind of goofery that took place in Fallout 2 was more accurate. That torch was more accurately carried by uh, Obsidian in uh, New Vegas, especially with the Wild West perk. Um, because uh, like in Bethesda Fallout, they'll be like, oh, it's the Cheers bar. Huh? Uh, we It's the Cheers. It's I mean, get it. It's a bar and we put a, a kind of a skeleton that looks like Norm in there. Huh? Huh? Meanwhile, like in Fallout 2, the TARDIS would just show up sometimes. So. <laughs> um, they also were very interested in giving you the feeling of having a lot of choice, but having control over that in a certain way. I've got this quote from Urquhart, the vampire, the vampiress. <laughs> Uh, here. Scotsman. You can just say Scotsman. We had a big map of all of Fallout 2 and we sketched out the route we thought the player was most likely to take and discussed exactly what quests they were likely to have done, what equipment they would have by that point, and so on. If players traveled to an area and didn't have the stuff we expected them to have, we made it difficult for them to get into that area. The enemies would be too tough, so they would probably uh, turn around and go back. But we could only do that a certain number of times. If players hit too many walls, they get frustrated and then stop. So another way we tried to kind of compartmentalize player choice, in each area we'd offer a lot of choices, but most of them would only affect the specific area. There weren't too many choices that affected the whole of the rest of the game world. That way the game could still feel rich and we could control the exponential growth of choices. Designers of one area didn't have to worry about everything the player might do in another. Even today, we still follow the same rules, and I see that in video games so much today. But it's mm. so interesting when I read about people, dis programmers discovering that and having those conversations for the first time. Like, how, how do we get these players to essentially... How do we, like, herd them loosely like, like um, um, a fucking sheepdog? You know, and uh, into what we want them to experience without limiting them and letting them feel like they're really getting to explore and enjoy all these different things. There is a weird issue with that kind of uh, development style where each team kind of handles their own zone where like just some zones are going to be like better or more resonant than others. Yeah. Uh, one thing that happens in Fallout 2 is you go to one zone and they decide to do like a fighting death pit tournament thing. And it's like kind of interesting because you're like, you know, in the fighting pits and it's it's all right. But then in New Reno, which is like this mob driven sex drugs and like fucked up 
swinging kind of like dirty town, uh, you can become a prize fighter. <laughs> and uh, that storyline is actually a little bit more interesting and has a little bit more heart. So like both teams had the idea of you become like a, a fighter. Gotcha. And one team pulled it off better. Oh, interesting. Uh, in, I'm, I'm surprised they kept both in the game. In the uh, prize fighter one, it famously has this weird quirk, or not a you know quirks are its own thing, but it has this thing where in the final match you fight like basically this uh, Evander Holyfield knockoff who bites your ear off and you permanently get a charisma uh, penalty hmm. because you're missing an ear for the rest of the game. That's amazing. Um, so Fallout 2 is released on September 30th, 1998, and was, uh, I believe, a much bigger commercial success than even its first one. People really dug that game. It, it definitely felt differently. It was more written in general, um, which definitely gave it more of a leg up. It had a bit more, uh, just a bit more plot, a bit more um, going on, I think, in that sense. Uh, but uh, I, it did. It did. People like the end game of Fallout 1 better, like right. the master and the cathedral is like more of a cooler thing. Uh, and then the Enclave and uh, the Super Mutant guy. But the, the road there, like the weirdness that you encounter on the way there is is more beloved in Fallout 2. Right, exactly. It's more, yeah. It's about the journey. And the considering ending. it's a video game, you know, only 8% of people actually see the ending to begin with. <laughs> exactly. So then we can briefly gl- go over Fallout Tactics Brotherhood of Steel and Fallout Brotherhood of Steel. Um, mm. Fallout Tactics is really like a real t- a turn-based real-time tactical role-playing game. Is, I'm sorry, did you say a turn-based real-time tactical role-playing game? Uh, yes, I said a turn-based tactical real-time role-playing game. Mm, it's two different things. Is it? Yeah, it's turn-based or ta- you know, real, real-time. Uh, I don't know why I have real-time here then. Mm. Ugh. Actually, I never played it. It could be a hybrid. You know, It could be a hybrid. Just you know, I've never fucking played it. It looks like a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> I think it was fine. I it, think was it was created by Australian company uh, called Micro Fort Studios or Forte Studios, and it was more about the gameplay, less so about character choice, very minimal dialogue, and it seemed like more also about like, hey, you can play this in multiplayer, and it was more about just you know using the basic mechanics of Fallout, and and also you could control squads. I feel like it was a little bit more like Fire Emblemy. Final Fantasy Tactics-y, yeah. um, for sure. And uh, yeah, it d- didn't really have a lot about it, other than it does, I believe, get, delve way more. Did the bro- was, was the Brotherhood of Steel introduced up to this point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Brotherhood okay. of Steel is one of the most memorable things in the whole oh, game. Okay, That's cool. why they settled on that as the... Uh, as the as the thing to make the spinoff game about. Okay, cool. Because I was wondering if that was where that came from, but no, no, it's just kind of a flash in the pan game. Um, there's even a funny reference in a, and I think Fallout Three maybe, where they talk about like the Chicago chapter of the Bro- Brotherhood of Steel and how they sort of went crazy and did their own thing, and they're referencing these games. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Fallout Brother Brotherhood of Steel, which is the first Fallout for consoles, that's Xbox and PlayStation 2. Mm, it was also, Tell me about this mediocre top-down action game. Exactly right. It was also Interplay's last Fallout game, and I think it definitely was a part of the decline of Interplay. Um, and uh, the gameplay is linear, um, not an open world. You can choose one of six characters to start, and they're not very customizable. It just seems to have lost all of the good things that made Fallout unique and special and great and looks very generic and boring. Uh, the fun thing about Fallout Tactics is that it launched, uh, it helped launch a bitter lawsuit between Interplay and Bethesda ah. because even after Bethesda picked up the rights for Fallout and... I had released Fallout 3, uh, Interplay was releasing on Steam and good old games, 
a uh, software package called the uh, Fallout Trilogy, which was Fallout 1, 2, and Tactics. Huh. And, and Bethesda was like, uh, hey, fuckers, <laughs> uh, couldn't help but notice you're selling a, a thing that makes people think they're going to buy our game. Holy shit, that's amazing, dude. Protracted legal dispute. Oh, I bet. And, of course... Um, uh, this moves us into the next chapter in our whole story. As we come close to the end of our episode, we'll talk a little bit about the beginnings of Fallout 3. But essentially, it starts here. Black Isle Studios is, was developing the game under working title Van Buren. Buren. Interplay during this time goes bankrupt and closes down Black Isle before completion. So then Interplay sells the license of uh, to Fallout 3 to a little-known game company called Bethesda for $1,175,000 minimum guaranteed advance against royalties to Bethesda Softworks. Um, and so we've got Bethesda. I, I, I'll give you a very brief rundown of Bethesda as we definitely talked about in our Skyrim episode. But you've got Chris Weaver, a scientist, engineer, and entrepreneur who started out in television eventually, becoming the president for science and technology at the National Cable Television Association, among other things, and um, he, he was—he's kind of all over the place, man. He like worked for television, then he was, then he was working for the government. Then Get he was- to Todd. <laughs> Who are these nonsense people? We want Todd. <laughs> and and Todd. He's, and he's an interesting man. This Chris Weaver. We want Todd. He gets interested in video games in the 1980s when he was helping a friend with his football game by creating a physics engine for it. Production of this game, which the name of the game was Gridiron, with an exclamation mark, and it came out for the Atari and other um, shitty computers at that time, and it resulted in the formation of Bethesda Softworks, which led to, of course, an incredibly popular Elder Scrolls series and, oh, motherfucking Fallout! It was also co-founded as ZeniMax Media, with a lawyer named Robert Altman, a parent company to Bethesda. I feel like I said that wrong. I'm going to start again. It's there's a whole we did a whole episode. We did a whole episode people on the formation of Bethesda. It's very complicated and it's it's fine, but we did it. Okay, people. Tell me about Todd. What's Todd's deal? He's fucking he's everything. All right. They basically just as Interplay was uh on its last legs, uh you know, they were desperate for money. They couldn't, you know, the PC gaming market had been slowly and gradually declining around this time. And uh, meanwhile, Bethesda kind of took the RPG genre with uh, Oblivion and Morrowind and kind of revitalized it with this 3D engine of theirs. And so they wanted to use it for a a non-fantasy setting. And the most dominant RPG video game franchise in a non-fantasy setting was still Fallout. And so, like, yeah, they they've wanted. been wanting it for years. Like, yeah. they'd been talking about how they they kept hitting up Interplay over and over again, just like, can we get the license? Can we get the license? And then finally, they just Interplay just cracked, so they were able to get it. Art director Leonard Boyarsky says this of the whole thing. He was from Interplay, and by the way, Bethesda used none of the work done on Van Buren. Boyarsky says. To be perfectly honest, I was extremely disappointed that we did not get the chance to make the next Fallout game. This has nothing to do with Bethesda. It's just that we've always felt that Fallout was ours, and it was just a a technicality that Interplay happened to own it. It sort of felt as if our child had been sold to the highest bidder, and we had to just sit by and watch. Since I have absolutely no idea what their plans are, I can't comment on whether I think they're going in the right direction with it or not. That's got to be pretty 
fucking brutal though to see to to have nothing to do with the like businessy fuck ups and just to see your creation just get sold off and i mean at least they did it justice at least they crushed it but that might be even be more painful oh for you are you are picking a very open wound right now oh, because yeah. the split between what uh, Bethesda Fallout is and what uh, Black Isle Fallout is is still being raged against to this day. People make two hour long YouTube videos debating which version is better. And uh, it's ironic that the, uh, you know, with the founding of Obsidian, uh, which was made from created from mostly old Black Isle Studios people, uh, it was Zenimax kind of going over Bethesda's head to hire them to make New Vegas. And that like kind of added more fire to the to the fucking inferno of debate over whose version of the future really works. And if you kind of like get a look at like where Fallout 4 ended up going, you know, I'm just saying sarcastic isn't a dialogue option. It's <laughs> like a weird suggestion of one. They started work on it in July of 2004, but principal development didn't begin until after Oblivion was uh, uh, Oblivion was essentially um like main work on that had been done and they used the same game engine on uh that they used on oblivion called game brio um and uh this is when we can finally fucking for the love of fuck talk about director todd howard it's todd (laughs) it's todd time (laughs) welcome to todd time everybody <laughs> but I hope you're wearing your tidy whities It's Todd time. <laughs> I hope you're doing it. I say that to myself every E3. <laughs> um, he, he was uh, the, Todd Howard, heavily inspired as a kid by RPGs like Wizardry and Ultima Three Exodus. He went to college for engineering and finance, but asked Bethesda for a job after playing their hit game Wayne Gretzky Hockey, which I will say is a killer fucking hockey game. I love Wayne Gretzky Hockey. It rules the school. I love that he wanted to get a job because of that. And apparently they said, eh, go back to college and then we'll, and then maybe we'll give you a job. And then he finishes uh, college and he goes back. He's like, hey, can I get a job? And they're like, nope. But then apparently he got a job after a little while um, and he started working as a producer and designer on Terminator Future Shock and Skynet. These are both... Uh, first-person shooter games with objectives that you have to go through keyword here is objectives um there's lots of objectives and also in fallout 3 there's tons of objectives it's actually kind of ironic that the only game that they that bethesda had made that involved gunplay before fallout 3 were those terminator games Mm -hmm. because we're talking about a post-apocalyptic world and everything Mm -hmm. absolutely and then he gets working on elder scrolls 2 daggerfall he was the project leader and designer as uh as well on elder scrolls 3 morrowind he starts to move up this is when he's moving up the chain you know what i mean this is when he's fucking all over the place. We there might have been some kind of uh, uh, shady deals and back rooms. You know, oh, he might Todd have been... has definitely like ruined a man with lies. Todd has definitely killed a, a, a bet on a rooster to kill another <laughs> rooster. All right, and Todd a... would never do anything that vile and crude. Todd would merely buy out the stadium where the rooster fight was happening, and then plant explosives underneath to get it shut down, thus collecting all the winnings. Todd Howard has a metal thumb. He put a <laughs> realistic-looking skin over it, but one of his thumbs is made of metal. Todd Howard technically doesn't have children. He just laid eggs. Todd Howard is the inspiration for the character Howard the Duck. <laughs> Rumor has it that if you can steal a single hair off of Todd Howard's head, he'll grant a wish. But if you fail, 
He'll take the whole arm. <laughs> Rumor has it if you see Todd Howard's balls, you'll be swimming down a long <laughs> fucking river, friend. Rumor has it Todd Howard has balls. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, he's working his way up. He's the project leader and designer on Morrowind. Also, um, he works. he's led the creation on Oblivion using uh, the philosophy of allowing people to, quote, live life, live another life, rather, in another world. Um, and he says uh, about the first two fallouts, what I really love about the first two is the overall atmosphere, tone, and role-playing. Those two games really let me, ch- uh, let me choose to play a certain character, and the level of immersion was outstanding. I was that guy on the screen wandering the wastelands trying to survive and helping humanity survive. And you could play it so many times and in so many different ways. The character system and the choices you could make were fantastic. So even he obviously had a, a, a loving relationship to the game. I, I we can't get too we can't get yeah. too into Fallout Three without. I think, I think this might be where we're going to call it here. Um, what do you think? I think uh, is there anything this topic- else you want to say to wrap up maybe this story so far? Um. It's the it's it's all part of the dream. It's all part of the idea that you can lose yourself in a world that you can inhabit another person's like life story that you can build the person you want to be or explore the person you never thought you could be. And uh, Fallout is one of the primary ways you can do that. And anytime any of these games kind of fail or anytime it kind of missteps or breaks the immersion of that people play pay bloody hell for it because it is such a again uh, um, you know they're going to make fallout 76 as a multiplayer experience but up until this point it's just you and your computer and like 40 hours of just wandering around and there just seem to be so many memorable moments in this game i love even just listening to a couple of people lament their time with fallout (laughs) generally marcus who um i hate to jinx ourselves but he should be joining us next week you jinxed it I jinxed it. If it doesn't happen, we'll figure something like out. Like he's gonna he's hand typing the last podcast book and it's like gonna fall into a motor. <laughs> right. Like in that episode of The Simpsons. I'm knocking on wood right now. But um he really speaks about it so passionately and so wonderfully. So I do hope that he does end up getting to join us. He has said yes, so hopefully it'll happen. Um and uh, we will chat about it more. We'll talk about Fallout Three, we'll talk about um New Vegas. We'll talk about uh, that Fallout 4, obviously, and into um, that Fallout 76 game. But I think it's great that we spent this much time on the first two games because uh, they really did set such a groundwork, and I knew le- way less about those games than I did about the history of Bethesda and, uh, and of course, the, the, the games we have today. I don't want to set the world on fire. Todd Howard. I just want to has it has a has a son, but it's like a giant baby that never ages. In my heart, I am the one. That's the rumor I heard. Desire. Thanks everybody for joining us for this episode of Wizard and the Bruiser, our part one on Fallout. If you'd like to patronize us, if you will, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly content every week. That's why it's called weekly content. Also, you can catch me on twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. You can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung and check out Cartoon Hell on collegehumorsdropout.tv. Hell yeah. It's a premium cartoon show where I yell things at cartoonists. Fuck yeah. Please do that. And until next time, Keep on whizzing. Never stop. Bruising. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
shop hooray nordstrom racks got sweet deals on everything easter which is sunday march 31st get to nordstrom rack now and save on kate spade new york two-faced steve madden calvin klein and more from just 30 dollars Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.